Well, welcome back after a long, long holiday break. It's been kind of hard for me to get rolling again, to be honest with you, a little bit. So anyway, but I'm glad to, to be here with you. So let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let's, let's start with a prayer and then um, we'll jump into this. 1 Timothy chapter 2 is where we're going to be tonight. <clears throat> Father, we acknowledge your presence here with us tonight. Sometimes we would say we invite you into our presence, but we acknowledge actually that you're here and we thank you for that. And we also acknowledge that as we turn to your word that we we as Christians stand upon the doctrinal truth that all Scripture is God-breathed. That these are your words, that you didn't just create us and dump us here on the earth to figure out how to do life, but you created us with a manual, a guide for our lives to come to know you, to love you, and to follow you. And so we ask tonight that you would do exactly, I love the passage in, in Luke 24 where the disciples were so struggling to understand some of the truths that you were teaching. And it says that you opened their minds that they might understand. And so we pray that this will be much more than a human endeavor of our capabilities intellectually. And we pray, the Holy Spirit, that you would be involved in this moment helping us to understand your word and its truths and its relevance to our lives. Especially as it regards, uh, relates to this topic that for us can be so challenging and, and so controversial. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to... Um, <clears throat> I want to see, we're going to go into 1 Timothy chapter 2 tonight, but before we jump into that text, I want to, so you interrupt me at any time, so um, I don't have it. Here's a question now. I think I do have some questions in here, but I want to, I want to kind of talk to you a bit to start out in principle, I guess you might say, of how we understand Scripture, how we've arrived at scriptures. I really think a lot of a lot of this discussion about any of these topics uh, with women's role or whatever it might be which is our topic um, a lot of it has to do is how, how we interpret scripture how we approach the bible and I think that's important we've had some classes here on that and so in order to start that out I, I want to tell you a story and you can decide if it's a true story or not as we go along so there was, um, there was a monastery in England off the coast on, on, of, of England. There are monasteries in England. And that's where a lot of monasteries are where monks serve. And monks are priests who have devoted themselves to the service of God and have devoted themselves to celibacy. And so there's this... There's this monastery there, and so a new, a new monk arrives at the monastery, and his name is Father John. And as you notice, I'm telling the story, you'll kind of feel like maybe Eddie's making some of these things up as he goes, which might give you a hint as to 
whether or not this is a true story or not. So Father John arrives in the monastery, and there are many, many tasks and jobs that are assigned to the monks there on this monastery. But um, the job that he is assigned to is copying. Copying the church documents, the old canons, the, the legal documents, the laws of the church by hand. And so... He goes in the room where all these other monks are involved in copying. And before he gets started, he looks around and he notices that all the other monks that are doing the copying of these texts are making copies from copies. And so he's thinking, well, that's really not the way you want to do that. So he goes up to the the abbot, very elderly man. An abbot is basically the one who serves in a leadership role over the monastery. And he says to the abbot, he said, I've noticed that, that here in copying these, these church documents that have the guidelines for our church, um, that we're copying from copies, but what do you do if one of the copies has a mistake and then, then that mistake is passed on to this copy and that mistake is passed on to the next copy and so these mistakes just continue on. As a matter of fact, they might even create more mistakes. And so... The old abbot says to him, says, well, we've been doing it like that for hundreds of years. We've been making copies from copies for many, many years. But you really bring up a good point, Father John. And Father Mark is the name of the, um, the elderly abbot. So he starts thinking about the truth of that. And maybe we shouldn't be copying from copies. Maybe I need to go and find the the older manuscripts, the original manuscripts from which we originally started these copies from. And so in the monastery, he goes deep, deep, deep down into the basement of the monastery. And that's where the old archives are. That's where the, the early or the original manuscripts are found. And they're actually locked inside of something like a vault and he opens it up and he's down there for hours and the other monks are upstairs going man where's father mark where's father mark he's been down there for hours he's been down there for hours and after a while they hear this pounding sound from downstairs and they're kind of wondering what in the world and they start hearing this moaning and this grieving. It sounded like he said that Father Mark is crying. And so Father John, this new guy, says, I'll go down there and see what's up. What's wrong with Father Mark? And he goes down there to, to Father Mark. And he's, Father Mark is sitting there with the, the, the original manuscripts. And he's sitting there with one of the most recent copies. And he's just pounding his hands and pounding his hands on the table. And he's crying and he's crying and he's crying. And, and Father John, the younger monk, asks Father Mark, the elderly abbot, What's the matter? Why are you so upset? And he's looking at this original manuscript and he's looking at this copy and he says, they, they left out the R. They left out the R. He goes, well, Father Mark, what do you mean they left out the R? He said, it's celebrate.
You got to think about that one for a little bit, right? Can you imagine a whole doctrine in a church practice like celibacy evolving that, that tells the ministers or the priests, I guess we would say, not to marry? Well, because that's what, that's what, that's what it is. That's what the Bible says, only to find out actually that's not what the Bible says. It's not celebrate or celebrate, but it's celebrate. And all these years, this old abbot thought it was, and so he's missed out on being married. So that's the joke. But I think it's fair to ask of us today, could, could, that, not be, could that not be happening in church life and church belief in church practices, are there, especially as we talk about this women's role issue, have we missed something and therefore what's happening here is so far from what God intended or has what God originally intended, has we, have, we, have, have we moved away from that? Um, are there beliefs and practices we hold to today which we believe to be firmly rooted in Scripture, but perhaps they aren't, and we've, we're mistaken? And has something like the story in this joke, has it happened to us? Has it happened somewhere along the way that through our human traditions and through our human ideas and through our influence of culture that practices and beliefs have come into the church and become so much a part of church culture that we've elevated them to that's the way it is because that's what the Bible teaches when in truth and we can't see it any other way as a matter of fact when we go to the Bible we read the Bible with those in mind and we interpret it with what we already understand it to be when in truth maybe that's not what the Bible says is it something like has something in the church happened like you see in the, you know the game um, the gossip game, that's the name of it. In, in the Czech, sometimes I think in the Czech language, it's, it's quiet post. For some reason, that's the word that comes to the quiet post office or whatever. You know how the game goes is that, and I did this in church one time. Do you remember that? I think I was teaching on the book of Proverbs and, and we were talking about gossip. And so I went over here to someone sitting at this chair and I said to them a sentence. And then I, and then I said, okay, you start whispering the sentence throughout the crowd. And then I preached on about gossip and then when I came to a point in the sermon uh, 15 to 20 minutes in I stopped in this and the sentence had gotten to somewhere over here but what this person said was very different than what originally had been said but as it had been passed on from one person to the other to the other to the other um, it had changed into something very, very different. Could that be happening in church life, in church culture? And therefore, there's a need for us to stop wherever we are in the history of our church and go back and say, what actually was, was said here? And see, this is, this is that, what I love about the, what we would call our Church of Christ roots, I guess you might say, um, this is, is at the very heart of, of, our, of our heritage that there were a group of individuals who kind of like Father 
what I call him, Father Mark, said, wait a minute. What does it really say? And they looked at what the church believed and they looked at what the church practiced and they compared it to the original, to, to Scripture and they realized how far they had departed from what God had originally intended for His people and for His church. And so they sought to restore Christian life. They sought to restore the Christian church to what God had expressed and revealed. Not as it had been passed down, but as God had originally expressed it in Scripture. And we call this the restoration movement, right? I love that. I love that thought. But here's the mistake, I think, perhaps that could have happened. I, I am not, I haven't written books and I'm not an expert on restoration history. But I think part of the mistake that could have happened is once we experience this restoration movement, it then ceased being a movement because the church was restored. And we had it figured out. We had everything clearly understood with no need for further restoration or further evaluation. We've got it set in place. But I think that we are foolish to think that the gossip game doesn't continue to be played. That, that we don't ever veer from Scripture, that we no longer get off course. We are foolish to think that man-made ways, cultural ways, man-made traditions don't get introduced into church and become so entrenched into church life that they become the way it's supposed to be, the biblical way, when in truth it's, it's really not biblical. And is, it, is it a tendency, is it not a tendency in of us to do this in church life and, 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 and in church practice or in our individual lives. And I wondered, I had this passage here in Joshua, perhaps you're familiar. Is this perhaps the reason why God instructed Joshua and the Israelites in Joshua chapter 1? He says, be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. But then he adds, do not turn from it to the right <laughs> or to the left why did he say hey don't turn from it to the right or to the left except for the fact is that not our tendency to have the word of God to know how God is guiding us but, but to have this tendency to move this way with it or to move this way with it to accommodate our preferences or to fit into church or fit into contemporary culture why was there such a harsh warning given in Revelation 22 and I understand that's directly speaking of Revelation but the principle is still there where he says I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll if anyone adds anything to them God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll why, why such a harsh warning except for the fact that we have that tendency 
to set out on a course of seeking and following God's will. But the next thing you know, this is removed and this is added and this is removed and this is added. And the next thing you know, we have become a people. We have become a church with a lifestyle and a practice and beliefs that, are, that have departed from, from God's, God's revealed will for us. And so there's a need, I believe, to do what we're doing tonight, I guess is what I'm trying to say. To, to ask these questions, wait a minute, what do we believe about this? Um, is we're going to look at a, a word, not celebrate or celebrate, celebrate, we're not going to do that. But we're going to look at a word and what does that mean? How are, how are we to understand that? So that I believe the restoration spirit, I pray it would, it would never cease. We should always be doing this. I, I think we should talk about homosexuality. Our, our culture is. What do we believe about that? What does Scripture say? What does Scripture say about a lot of these gender issues or a, a lot of so whatever whatever it may be? Um, are we holding to Scripture? Are we moving with culture? Have we left Scripture? And so that's what we're doing as we look at this topic of women's role and especially as it relates to their, um, their participation and their involvement in the assembly and in the larger sense in, in the church overall. And one of the reasons we're doing this, and I've repeated this every single time, I think it's worth repeating, is because it's to... Um, Reaffirm our strong conviction of, of the value and the worth and the important giftedness and the role of women in the church. And you would think, well, we shouldn't have to do that. That should be obvious. But, but evidently, it's not so obvious. It needs to be reaffirmed. And secondly, the reason we're doing this is because it's, it's so incredibly controversial. And it's still causing hurt it's still causing conflict it's still causing people to leave or to be upset um, it's still causing people to to feel discomfort and there are new people that come into our our our, our church family from other churches and what it, what happens here in this assembly is quite different than what they're used to and so how do you justify what you're doing here biblically? There are some that are here who are here, but they're not comfortable. It, it's almost a violation of their conscience, the, the elevation of what women are allowed to do here. There are other people on the flip side of that who are here who are not comfortable because their consciences are, are, are feel as though they're violated because women are not doing what they should enough should be doing. And so we have all of that. And so for the sake of unity and for the sake of of um, love and, and respect for, the, for, for our church family, we're going back to Scripture and we're asking ourselves, well, what exactly does the Bible say? And so what we, our, our, our ultimate goal was originally to go to the two passages in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2. We're in 1 Timothy 2 tonight. And to look at these um, two passages that give the prohibitions for women in the assembly. But first, before we did that, we spent probably three weeks, I think it was, in 1 Corinthians 11, 
which sheds important light on this topic. And I'll just tell you personally for me, and I'll give you a little bit of a review of each of these that we've looked at before we look in 1 Timothy 2. When I read 1 Corinthians 11, I kind of felt as though it was like I found the missing R when I read this passage in the sense, if you understand that joke. Um, I, I thought to myself, how did we not see this passage? Have we had it locked away in the basement of the church um, and just not looked at it or not considered it? And so we went to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and we saw that Paul, um, that, that there were women in the church in Corinth who were praying and prophesying. They were speaking in the presence of men in the assembly. Now that can be disputed, but I believe it's pretty clear as in the assembly. Paul does not tell them to stop. He doesn't tell them that it's wrong, but he instructs them how to do it appropriately. He tells them to speak in such a manner that showed respect to the divine order of authority which God has established in our relational roles. And so we've, we've talked all about that, but the problem wasn't that women were speaking. It was simply how. And so I saw this and I, th I thought, how did we conclude that it's wrong for a woman to speak or to pray in the assembly when we have a clear example in 1 Corinthians 11 of women that were praying and prophesying in the church, early church and given instructions on how to do it. How did we not see that? Um, or did we see it and interpret it according to what we already had set in place in our practice, which, which happens? So that was the first passage we went to. And then the second passage we looked at was, was the first really passage of prohibition in 1 Corinthians 14. And there we see that women were instructed to be silent, but not, as, as I shared with you, no speaking in church, but it was to be silent in any way that would be causing disorder and chaos in the assembly. That is clearly the context of chapters 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians, that there was chaos and disorder. Women were contributing to that, and they were told... Um, in the context of that, not, don't you ever speak, but in the context of disorderly conduct, to be quiet in a way that's uh, speaking that would distract from the good of the church. And, and I talked with you about this last time. See, this was in December, wasn't it? Last year. Um, the mistake that we make with that passage is we take those two verses, we pull them out, and we look at them, and we could easily reach a conclusion that's not what the passage says. We have to look at it not in isolation but in its larger context. I shared with you many verses um, in the last class about that. 1 Timothy chapter 2 so kind of set the stage for our discussion tonight. Um, so we're looking at another one of these passages that gives, gives a prohibition and it says in verse 11 as we're going to look at this um, I'll read this. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. Well, that just seems incredibly clear. Why do we even need to spend a whole class on that? Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's clear as it could be. But like I said in, in the last class when we looked in 1 Corinthians 14, we are making a huge mistake if we look at that passage, those two verses outside in isolation outside of the larger context of 1 Timothy chapter 2. So we need to do a little better um, interpretation of Scripture rather than just pulling out and looking at it 
by itself. So what I want us to do tonight is, is, is first of all, is we want to, to, is it says she must be silent. What does that mean? And I entitled this series, The Sound of Silence. So the question we have here is, well, what is the sound of silence? How do we understand what that means? Well, there's, there's three places, I guess you could say three, maybe four places you go to when you're, when you're trying to, when you're unpacking scripture and trying to understand it to define what a word means. There's, there's three, four places. I'm not sure if this fourth and where I could fit it in, but I'll share it with you. One of those places is going to be a dictionary. You go to the dictionary. What does this word mean? You look in a dictionary. And so in the Greek discussion, we're going to call that a, a, a lexicon. Uh, and what's interesting, important to understand is that when I, when I go to a dictionary or lexicon, sometimes one word has more than one meaning. And so that's a challenge, okay? But that's the first place we go to, and we're going to do that tonight. We're going to go to the dictionary, the Greek lexicon. What is that word? Silent. That must be silent. Does that mean zip? Is that what that means? And then secondly, the other place that, that I would suggest that you go to is where else in the Bible is that word used? How is it used in other passages? And then another place that you go to is, is in the, I guess I would call it the immediate context. So I'm looking in the dictionary. What does the dictionary say about this word? I'm looking how it's used throughout the Bible. And then I'm zooming in. I'm looking in 1 Timothy. How, how, how does this fit into the larger context of 1 Timothy? And how does this fit into the immediate context here of chapter 2? Because it's really important, I think, to understand that just because you find the meaning of a word a word can have multiple meanings based upon its context. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. If I say the word, have I, have I shared this with you before? Perhaps I have, I can't remember. The word run, what, is the, what does run mean? Who could give me a definition of run? See, when a teacher asks a question so obvious, like why even answer? But it isn't obvious. Quickly, what does run mean, Keith? Go very quickly, and I would suggest with your legs, perhaps, right? That's what run means. I mean, is that not clear? But what if, what if I'm speaking in the context of a faucet? It means something different. Or what if I'm speaking in the context of run in a refrigerator? Oh, it means something different. What if I'm speaking of run in the context of a nose? Ah, there it means something different. What if I'm speaking of run in the context of, uh, this is probably outdated now, I don't know if it is, pantyhose? <laughs> uh, or what if I'm, Speaking of run in the context of a political race, or of a car, or of a, of a computer, or of a movie, that, uh, or in the context of a mouth. Is it moving quickly? No. Or what if I'm speaking of run in the context of someone who has, is sick to his stomach? That's my immature comment for tonight. Um, <laughs> 
Here's the point. It's a mistake to say, well, everybody knows what that means. It means to move quickly with your feet. No, wait a minute. What are we talking about? What's the context? And so you can't just go to the word silent. We know what that means. It means this. Okay, that could mean that. But, but what's the context? Um, here's the mistake that, that biblical writers and teachers make. They go to a dictionary, and you'll see dictionaries, they have multiple definitions that are different of words, and they already know what it means, and they pick the one that suits what they already understand it to mean. And I know that they do that because I'm one that has done that. I already know what I want to teach. Now I've got to find a scripture. Well, that scripture doesn't clearly say that. Oh, there's a way of looking at it. The Greek that Mike could say that, so I'm going I'm to push. I, I've I actually done that I've made that mistake so the question is what is the sound of silence we're going to look at a lexicon definition what does it mean and uh, dictionary and then we're going to see how is that used throughout scripture and then we're going to go to its larger context of first Timothy and then to its immediate context of of chapter two now as far as a lexicon or the dictionary is concerned um, you can buy those as books, but with the world of computers, you don't have to. You can simply go to blueletterbible.org. is one of the best ones. I love. I use it all the time. And I type in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, and I pull up that word, and I get the Greek word hesuhia. So that's the word for silence. What you're going to find is that word in chapter 2, if I, if I remember correctly, is used three times. Twice as a noun in verses 11 and 12, a woman should learn in, in hesuchia, quietness, and in full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be hesuchia, silent. It's used twice there. She must be, and she uses a noun, I think, in silence. Okay? Now, it's also used in chapter 2 and verse 2, but it's used as an adjective. But in my NIV, it's translated differently. Verse 1, I urge them, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and hesuhia, quiet lives. That's an adjective. So it's not saying ban on speaking. It's talking about living a quiet life in all godliness and uh, holiness, it says there. When I open up the lexicon in blueletterbible.org or the multiple books that I could share with you I have in my office, it means to be quiet. It means to be tranquil. I could use that word to say, settle down. Hesuchia, settle down. Um, it could be translated to be peaceable. Or it could be translated to, to be silent. So that's the lexicon use or definition of that word. So we've got a lot of wiggle room there. So we, we're going to be a little bit more forced to look at the context. But what I think it's really interesting to do, let's take that word and let's look at its usage throughout Scripture. How is it used elsewhere? Um, so we could go to the Old Testament. You think, well, how could you do that? Because we're in the Greek and the New Testament. The Old Testament is Hebrew. Well, the Hebrew text was translated into the Greek, and if I understand correctly, in Alexandria, sometime 200, 250 B.C., into what's called the Greek Septuagint. And that was actually a Bible that was used in the first century. And you even see quotes in the New Testament from that. And so 
you see this word hesuchia come up in the, in the Greek Septuagint a number of times in the Old Testament. Well, I'm curious, how did they? Because you're thinking, historically, that's also how you understand a definition of a word. How was it understood historically? And so historically, as they're translating this, and they use this word hesuchia in the Greek, they use it in these various ways. For example, in Joshua chapter 5 and verse 8, there's a story of the whole Israelite nation. All the men who had not been circumcised got circumcised. Which that's just an unpleasant thought. If you're a man um, in those days of not so modern medical science. And in that context of their post-circumcision procedure, it says they hesuchied. They rested. They remained still. Doesn't mean they didn't speak. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But the point is, there was stillness. There was rest. That's how that word is used there. I go to First Chronicles chapter 4 in verse 40. And it's speaking of the land at that time. And this says the land was peaceful and hesuchia. A land was hesuchia. That's how it's used. It was quiet. It's not talking about talking. Literally, it's figurative speech. In First Chronicles chapter 22 and verse 9, I find that word. God is speaking to, to David. And God says to David, you're going to have a son who will be a man of peace and rest. That's the word. You're going to have a son who will be a man of peace and hesuchia. I will give him rest from all his enemies. That's speaking of Solomon. It doesn't say, your son is never going to speak. He says, yeah, but your son, your son is going to be a peaceful man. He's not going to be a fighting man like you, David. And which is interesting. That same word is used in 1 Timothy. And when you read 1 Timothy 1, through the whole chapter through 6, there was fighting and quarreling and arguing. And 1 Timothy is clearly calling God's people, men and women, to be peaceful, to be quiet. In, in that way. Um, Proverbs chapter 11 verse 12. I find that word hesuchia used again. A man of understanding. Holds his tongue. Does that mean the man, the man of understanding. Hesuchias. <laughs> I'm using that word. In, in English weird ways. Does that mean he never speaks? No. But he, 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 there's an appropriate way. In which he speaks. And when he doesn't speak. Um. Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 2, that word is used again. Quite interesting. This is the one I esteem. In, in the NIV, I'm, I'm quoting from Isaiah 66 too. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and hesuchia in spirit. And the NIV translate that, translate that, I think, appropriately. Contrite in spirit. Speaking about godliness and holiness. And that's the theme in 1 Timothy as well. And then Ezekiel chapter 38 in verse 11. Um, he speaks of a peaceful people. He's not speaking of a people who were mute. Who couldn't speak or didn't speak. He's speaking of people who weren't a fighting people. That's how that word was used in the Old Testament. And you read First Timothy in the church in Ephesus, there was a lot of fighting going on. He's, he's speaking into that. 
That's the context. We'll see. We're gonna, I'm really jumping ahead of myself. Then I go, okay, that's how I see that word used in the Old Testament. And then I move into the New Testament. I ask myself, well, how is that word used in the New Testament? And it's used a number of times. For example, in Acts chapter 22 and verse 2, Paul is in Jerusalem. And if I understand the context correctly, I think he's been arrested. And he's trying to defend himself. And in speaking on his defense, he begins to speak in Aramaic. And when, he, when they heard him speak in Aramaic, it says they became very hesuchia. They became quiet. So that's, that's a little bit more not speaking because he's speaking Aramaic. Um, now, 2 Thessalonians, this is worth reading because I think it really speaks into a parallel into our passage in 1 Timothy. In, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says in verse 11, We hear that some among you are idle. You're going to see that in 1 Timothy and Ephesus. There were a group of people, actually they were women, and they were idle and he says, they're not busy, they're busy bodies. Paul says that to Timothy. In the church in Ephesus, there were some women who were idle, and they had become busybodies. Here in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, he says, we hear that some among you are idle. They're not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to hesuchia. Here it's translated, to settle down. Stop the busybodiness to hesuchia, to settle down and earn the bread they eat. That's how that word, that word is translated there. Not, we urge these people, they need to stop speaking. No, they need to settle down. That's how that word is used there. And then the beautiful passage in, in first, this is very much a parallel to First Timothy in uh, our passage. In First Peter chapter 3, he's talking about a woman of beautiful character. And it's in the topic of submission and a huge, huge theme of submission there. And he's talking about a woman's beauty and what makes her pretty. And he says it's not how she dresses. It's not her gold. It's not her jewelry, which is interesting because in First Timothy 2, he's talking about women who about their dress with pearls and gold and jewelry. And he says in First Peter chapter 3, a woman's beauty and their character is... Um, not to be displayed through gold or jewelry, but it's through a gentle and hesuchia spirit. A gentle, and we translate that in English, a quiet spirit. It's not saying, women, you are most beautiful when you never speak. I won't make any jokes about that. <laughs> it's not saying that. No, it's, 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 a, it's a character. It's an attitude. A quiet and humble and submissive Spirit that he's speaking about there. So then in First Timothy, then we move into First Timothy two, and we see how this is is also used in First Timothy chapter two. He says, he says, I urge then. I've already read this. Um, we all need to pray for kings in verse two, and for all those in authority that we may live peaceful and hesuhia lives, quiet lives. Not meaning we just need to stop talking. That's not what that means. It's speaking about being peaceful um, in, our, in our interaction with one another. So that's how that word, that's what that word means in the dictionary. That's how that word is used throughout Scripture in all these places. But then when we come to verse 11 of chapter 2, a woman must learn in hesuchia and quietness 
in full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over man. She must be hesuchia. She must be silent. We, we translate that as she must not talk. Isn't it interesting that we conclude she must not talk here, but not in all these other places? Um, so that's the definition of the word. That's its usage elsewhere in Scripture. So all that I want to do... Are there any questions or comments? I, I'm kind of just rambling on. And, and I don't have my glasses on, so maybe your hands are up and I'm missing that. That's intentional. No, Keith? What'd you say? She must be quiet. But, 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 but quiet still could be, be quiet. That could still mean zip it. I've been a while since you've been through this. Muzzle it. Yes, muzzle. I know. I don't think it's the same word as to muzzle an ox. Uh huh. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I, I I didn't come across that recently, and I don't remember in my past studies of this coming across. I'm not saying that's not true, though. It may be true of a different word that's used in reference to silence, perhaps. Uh huh. Okay. Oh, I see what you're saying. They're not cold. Yeah, they're not told to. Okay. And, okay. So um, any other comments or questions before we look at, I want us to look at our next point here. So what, what we're going to do is, if we can achieve, and I think we can. Yeah, yeah I think we can. We're just going to take a quick peek at all of First Timothy. And that's really important. Instead of, Let's look at this verse, or let's look at this chapter. Let's look at this whole letter. This is really important. And it's not so hard to do with the New Testament letters because they're not so large. If you really want to do your homework well, you do what's called, um, before you try to, uh, um, you just want to read the whole book, a letter from beginning to end, and you're looking for historical statements that give you a clue as to what, the, what, what writers will call the occasion in the sense of what was the occasion that prompted God to say, that's it, Paul, you need to write these folks a letter because we've got to do something about this. What was the occasion that prompted Paul to write First Timothy? It wasn't simply, let's write a letter to the church in Ephesus and go over some doctrinal stuff really quickly. There were some things going on that prompted, there was an occasion that brought this about. So what was that? So what, I, what we'll do is we'll look at, we're not going to read all of it. You're welcome to do that on your own. I'm going to direct you to what I believe to be historical statements in First Timothy that give us clues as to what was going on. And here's what I think happens. When you do that, all of a sudden you come to this passage I read at the beginning of the class on women being silent. And you go, oh, oh, here's what's going on. No wonder, no wonder he said that. I think you will do that. So, in chapter 2 and verse 1, I'm going to be showing you some verses that, is this not a historical clue? In chapter 2 and verse 1, as we're entering into our passage, he says, I urge, notice the word, then. So that's telling me 
what I'm getting ready to say, because of what I just said, I urge this. So what did he just say in chapter 1 that's going to prompt him to say what he's going to say in chapter 2, especially with the prohibition that we see? So we don't have time to read all of chapter 1. You can do that on your own. Let me just, let me just read this, and you, you guys need to talk to me now. I've been talking way too much, and that's my own fault. What, what was the occasion? What was the historical context? What was the problem going on in the church in Ephesus that prompted Paul to write this letter? It's quite clear. Verse 3. We'll read 3 through 7. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command, command certain men. Now stop. Not a good translation there. It's really not the best translation, certain men. Not unless you do men in general, women and men. That's really a better translation so that you may, may command certain people, certain ones. So this could easily embrace men and women, okay? It's not men only. I'm pretty certain of that, okay? Um, I command, uh, say there in Ephesus so that you, so we know, first of all, historically, Timothy is in Ephesus, and uh, Paul is not. He's writing to Timothy. I left you in Ephesus that you may command certain ones, certain men, not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and have turned to meaningless talk. Listen to this. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about. You've read teachers like that. Um, or they don't know what they so confidently affirm. All right, there's a historical clue. Tell me about the church in Ephesus and what was going on. What's the occasion? It's your turn. <clears throat> Not too complicated. They were getting distracted. That's extremely important. You're supposed to be proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and you're off track. You've lost sight of your purpose and your mission because of what? Other ideas, okay? So that's true. That's really clear in First Timothy. You see that happen in churches. You don't see people sharing their faith and people coming to Christ because they're focused on other things that are distracting them. What else is going on in the church in Ephesus? Hist what are statements here that give us clues about what's going on? There were people that were doing what? About as clear as it gets. There were, there were people in the church in Ephesus that were, had a role of teaching. They were teaching false doctrine. They were promoting, not just controversial, but they were promoting controversies. They were devolved in a lot of debate. Yeah, there, there's actually a word. Uh, yeah. To meaningless talk. There were people who were teaching. And you're going to remember the women are told this teaching that you're doing, it needs to stop. There were people in First Timothy, could be men, could be women, who were teaching and they had no clue what they were teaching about. They were affirming that they were confident they knew what they were talking about, but they, they really didn't. And as a result, there were people who were wandering away. I, and I understand that to mean from the, from the faith. 
So there were, there were people that were devoting themselves to false doctrine. They were teaching it. They were devoting themselves to myths and in, in just English, endless genealogies. They were promoting controversies. And this was pulling people away from God's will and purpose for their lives and for the church and from their faith. Now let's look at another verse. Oh, in verses 19 and 20, he actually identifies two of them. He says in verse 18, I'll back up. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by following them you may fight the good fight. That tells you in the church, you've got to stand up and be strong against what, it, what is hurting the church. Holding on to faith and a good conscience, some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to be taught not to blaspheme. So there, this, is, this is serious. There are negative influential people with their teaching and with their controversies and the promotion of myths and genealogies, whatever the discussion was about that. That was getting the church and the people off course of their faith. Now in chapter 2 and verses 1 through 15. We'll, we're going to read that next week. Because that's our immediate context. When you go in chapter 3. We're not going to read that. I'm just going to make reference to that chapter. This is the main chapter that we're very familiar with. About um, the appointment of shepherds, overseers or elders in the church. And if you read that, it's not complicated to see that he's describing this position of leadership here in, in the role of men. He's giving men here in chapter 3 the authority to lead the church in the role of elders and deacons. You see that, it's quite clear. Except for the fact um, in verse 11, as he's speaking of deacons, in the same way their wives, that could be easily translated in the same way, in, in the same way the women in reference to deacons, which could be deaconesses here. Uh, and so, so there's the strong possibility, biblically speaking, I think most of you already know this, that there, it's likely there are women deaconesses in the church, but this was not the role of elders. The point I'm making here is there was an authoritative role that he says we need some leadership in the church. This church is out of control, and you need to establish some leadership. You need some men who hold to and live by these qualities in their lives. And that's important because the women that we're going to be speaking about next week in chapter 2 were um, disregarding authority, submission to authority. And he speaks to that. It, it is interesting to say in verse 11, he says, in the same way their wives, or in the same way these women who serve in this function are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything, it leads me to only ask, not to be certain of, but to ask, were there some women in the church who were not like that? Who were not worthy of respect? Who were malicious talkers and were not trustworthy? I'm pretty confident there were some women like that when I keep reading the letter. I need to move quickly here. So I go in chapter 4 and verse 1 through 7. Another historical statement, I think. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because created by 
the word of God in prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourselves to be godly. And so, who tells old wives' tales? Could be men. Very likely, it's women that were spreading these old wives' tales. This could be very likely there are women who are involved in godless chatter. They're taking roles of teaching false doctrine. Men as well. And here's what's frightening. They were puppets of Satan, he says here. It's not just them and their own personalities that was at play here. But there were demonic spirits involved in the church using members of the church in leadership and teaching and gossiping and, and, and um, um, old wives' tales or however you want to call it, influencing and working in the church. They were forbidding people to marry. They were forbidding people to eat certain foods. Okay, I've got to move quickly because we've got to end here pretty soon. And then in, in chapter 5... This is quite an interesting passage, and I don't have time to read it all. But in chapter 5, he says, okay, you guys, we need to be taking care of widows. And I just love God's heart there. And so he's in this context of there's a lot to say here in, in chapter 5 about that. But he says in verse 9, no widow, and I do not like this. I read this today, and it made me angry. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60. What's 60 got to do with it? I just turned 60. Does that mean you're old and you need somebody to take care of you? That is clearly, clearly a mistranslation, okay? I saw that though. No! I'm 60. Nobody's taking care of me. No. Huh? Retirement age. Retirement age. No widow may put on the list of widows unless she's over 60 and has. Now I want you to watch this. He's not saying she has to meet these qualifications or you shouldn't support her. He says, This is the type of women you need to make sure you're taken care of. She's over 60. She's been faithful to her husband. She's well known for her good deeds. How are you well known for good deeds? Such as bringing up children. Notice that because in chapter 2 in our controversial passage, it says women will be saved through childbirth. A quality of godliness is a woman who's been raising her children. Is, do you have to have a child in order to be saved? I don't think so because he mentions that here. Just keep a note of that. But now here's what I want you to notice. In chapter verse 11 what was going on in the church in Ephesus watch this as for the younger widows do not put them on such a list for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ they want to marry thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge besides they get in the habit here we are I mentioned to this earlier they get in the habit of being idle and going about from house to house and not only do they become idlers but also gossips and busybodies saying things they ought not to ought not to so I counsel younger widows to marry there's this have children again it's, it pops up again to manage their homes and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander some have in fact already turned away to follow Satan what was going on in the church in Ephesus there were what young widows who had a lot of free, idle time. They turned into busybodies. They were gossiping. 
They were causing controversy. Um, They were stirring up problems within the church. He's not saying this could happen. He says this is already going on Um, among the women. And then let's go quickly. I'm having to move quickly here. In chapter 6 and verses 3 through 5, what are the historical statements? In, in, if anyone teaches false doctrines, so there must have been false doctrines. He keeps talking about it. If anyone teaches, he's correcting teaching in chapter 2 with women. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound doc, instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies. You see that? Not only is it involved in controversy, an interest in controversies. You see people like that. And quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. And so you have people in the church, could be men, could be women, probably as both, who are teaching false doctrine, they're creating controversy, they're kind of enjoying it, they're creating quarrels, and some of them are even suggesting that Financial success, uh, that, that your godliness is going to set you up for that, the prosperity gospel. Uh, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, another historical statement. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and, tra- and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the truth and pierced themselves with many griefs. This, this push and this promotion under the, the, the umbrella of, of Christianity is leading people astray. Verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. Why is he telling them to command them not to be arrogant? Not unless they were. There was arrogance in the church. Nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us. And so there were people in the church who were flaunting their wealth. And flaunting their wealth as though it was an indication of their godliness. And they were likely flaunting their wealth through the way they carried themselves, through the way they dressed, likely through the jewelry. We're going to talk about jewelry in chapter 2 that they wore. They were promoting themselves like that. And then finally in chapter 6 and verse 20, I'm going too quickly, I know. Timothy, guard Verse 20, what has been trusted to your care, turn away from godless chatter. You wonder if he's telling Timothy to turn away from it. If Timothy wasn't getting pulled into this, he might have been. Turn away from, there's godless chatter in the church. And the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in doing so have wandered from the faith. There was godless chatter. There was false teaching in the name of truth that was being propagated in the church looks like by men and by women. It's no surprise that there's a correction given to women in chapter 2. But was it a ban on speaking in the assembly? Or did it have to do with the problem that was here? Let me summarize and we're done. I'm sorry I I moved so quickly. I I thought I I wouldn't have to do that. Here's the occasion. Here's my summary that I wrote. Individuals in the church in Ephesus, men and women, that's clear, by their behavior, by their teaching, and by their arrogance, 
were causing division and controversies. They were leading people astray. Some of the arrogance was related to their wealth. They were boasting and bragging about their wealth and showing that as a sign of godliness. Some of those causing the problem were clearly younger widows who had become busybodies who were spreading nonsense, spreading slander, saying things they ought not to say, posing as teachers when they had no clue what they were speaking about. Also at the heart of their problems were the deceptive forces of Satan and his demonic forces that were at work. Helping us understand that behind all of this was the work of Satan to destroy the church, which is frightening to think. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.